Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Father, we seek your face, your presence. Tonight as we hear your word, we, we turn our eyes and our hearts to you. We breathe deeply of your peaceful presence and we wait for you. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good evening. It's great to see you. Another beautiful night. Another night in church. Tonight we're going to talk about covenants. Old covenant, new covenant. But I want you to know, I'm not one of those people that always likes the new thing. Though I do like new stuff. I love new stuff. In fact, I probably have a, an unhealthy enjoyment of new stuff. But I also like old stuff, and I tend to have a sort of preference for older things. I love to use fountain pens. Fountain pens, I'm told, are old. Wow, that's so old, so strange and quirky, yet so cool and hip. I added that last part. I love vinyl records, as I'm sure many of you do, because you know that there's a different sense of presence in the music. Instead of listening to it through your phone, you feel like you're right in the middle of the jazz combo or of Skinner, once again, singing Freebird, soloing for hours and hours. I tried for a while, for several months this year, to use a flip phone. <laughs> it's not... I know you're laughing with me, Ben, not at me. And while I loved the exercise of using the old flip phone, it didn't work quite so well because iPhones are just so pragmatic. They just work so well. So I love old stuff. So don't hear, don't hear me tonight coming at you with all this new stuff. But there is something new that the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to God's people, in fact, that God is speaking through the prophet. Now, we've been walking with Jeremiah, haven't we? We've been walking with the people of Jerusalem and Judah. 
Jeremiah has been proclaiming that destruction is coming. Why? Because God's people have not been faithful. They did not remain devoted to him. In fact, Jeremiah's vocation, you heard God echo it. You heard him echo it in Jeremiah 31, where he says, I was with you just as I was with you to uproot and tear down and overthrow and destroy. Do you remember how God pronounced Jeremiah's vocation to him? I knew you in the womb, and this is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be uprooting and tearing down, but you're also going to be building and planting. And so the people of Judah and Jerusalem have, have undergone destruction because of their reliance and faith on false gods. They have been exiled, those that are still alive, which is just not very many of them. They have been exiled to Babylon. Now they're in a foreign land. Remember, they still have their identity. They have this sort of new pattern for living, no longer relying on false gods. And they have hope, don't they? They have that hope that God's mercy is new every morning and great is his faithfulness. We saw in the book of Lamentations and we saw last week that God had a plan for them even in exile and that plan was to seek the welfare of the city. They've been sent away, away from their home, but even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of not even knowing where God is, God says, seek the welfare of the city that you're in. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate, do the things that have to do with life. And now we hear God's word to the people of Judah and Jerusalem through the prophet Jeremiah, and he's speaking of a new covenant. Before we get into talking about the new covenant, I want to talk to you about covenants in general. Covenants didn't just belong to the people of Israel. In fact, most Near Eastern cultures, tribes, people, societies, you know, insert your favorite word, most of those tribes and people would work with each other and, and create agreements with one another through covenants. Covenants were a way to, to have one powerful king have a vassal or client king under him or set of kings. And it was a way that they would have peace, even though there was some shedding of blood that would bring about the peace. Now, here are some common, ready for preacher terms, common covenant components. The three C's of covenants. Hashtag. Sermon. Okay, sorry. Some common covenant components. There are usually two parties. So two parties are coming together. There's an oath. So when you think of like raising your right hand to swear, when we go back and look at images from this era, the Bronze Age and before, we see two kings, one great king and one lesser king, raising their right hands in a solemn oath, swearing to this covenant. Also, there is a sacrifice. And part of that sacrifice, there would be a meal. So the, the two parties would come together. They would, they would sacrifice this animal or a set of animals, and they would pass between the animals. This is why they call it cutting a covenant. They'd pass between them, and they would eat the flesh of the animal and drink its blood, but not the Israelites, because we don't drink no blood. Israelites would drink wine instead. But in essence, that was saying, if I go against the covenant that I've made with you, let me be as these, let God do to me as we've done to these animals. So there's a sacrifice, there's a meal, there's an agreement. You do this, I do this. Okay, you'll be my covenant people if you 
follow these stipulations. And I'll be your covenant king, and I'll do this, this, and this. And we have a covenant. We have an agreement. So we have all these things that come together that are common covenant components. And it's interesting because now in this new covenant, we're going to notice something different, but not quite yet. So we've seen the historical context of the covenant. We see where we are in the story of of Judah and Jerusalem, right? God's reaching out to his people. I'm going to restore you. There's going to be a new covenant. So let's look and see some details about this covenant. Look at verse 32 in Jeremiah 31. And if you've got a Bible, great, open up to that because we're going to flip around to some other spots. It's also in your bulletin. Look at verse 32. This new covenant that the Lord declares that he's making with Israel and Judah. Now notice that real quickly. It's Israel and Judah. The kingdom's been divided since the 700s. God's going to bring it back together. The covenant that he's making with them is, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, what covenant is that? That's the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. So remember, the people of Israel were in Egypt. They cried out to God. God delivered them with ten plagues, the last and final plague being the, being the most terrible. And part of that last plague, the way they were protected was by observing the Passover. They get out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry land. Everything's going great. They get to Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with them. Hey, it's awesome. But while Moses is up on the mountain, what do the people of Israel do? I know what we should do. I know what we should do. We should take all of our gold and make golden calves as idols and worship them. So God creates this agreement with the people of Israel. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Here are the rules of the covenant, the stipulations. Moses and all the elders of Israel go up the mountain. They sacrifice 70 bulls, all this stuff. There's blood everywhere. Moses is sprinkling blood on them. This is the blood of the covenant, all that stuff. They're eating a meal. All these things are here. And God says to the people of Israel, but this is not going to be like the covenant that I made with your fathers when they left Egypt. That covenant was accompanied by great signs. What were some of the great signs? Thunder, lightning. Moses would come down from the mountain. His face would be glowing like crazy. It was wild. God said, don't even let an animal get on the side of this mountain. So God says, I'm making this covenant with you. It's not like the old covenant that I made with them. Why would restoring Israel necessitate a different covenant? Could could God just not go back and reset and say, you know what? For several hundred years, you guys were off quite a bit. Let's just go back. Let's reset. St. Paul has something to say about that in Romans 8. If you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever, look at Romans 8 real quickly. Verses 3 and four. You see, there's something specific about our behavior in light of God's holiness and righteousness and in light of the stipulations of that Mosaic covenant. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God needed to make a new covenant with the people of Israel because they simply could not keep the old covenant. In fact, it was impossible for anyone to keep. The flesh could not do it because it's weakened by sin. The people of Israel could not keep the old covenant. Moreover, that old covenant was conditional. Do you remember what rose up with that old covenant? There was a place of worship, and there was also a system of sacrifices. And the system of sacrifices would atone for the sins of the people of Israel. Because every time there was sin, every time the people of Israel would break that covenant, what had to happen? There had to be shedding of blood. The book of Hebrews, summarizing the Old Testament worship cult, says there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. You following me? So covenants are bloody. Have you picked up on that yet? Like Quentin Tarantino style bloody. Covenants are bloody. Priests were like butchers. They had to know how to take a bull, first of all, kill it, let the blood run down. Then they had to know how to cut the thing up. Covenants were bloody. The people of Israel could not keep the covenant because their flesh was weakened by sin. They could not keep the law. Therefore, God had to make a new covenant with them. But what is different about this new covenant? What's so special about this new thing that God is doing in the people of Israel? Now remember, remember our co common covenant components. Do you remember from the beginning of the sermon? You, you've already tweeted about them and hashtagged them. Verses 33 and 34 of Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Okay? So remember the words of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant? Where were the words of the covenant written in the Mosaic covenant? On stone tablets. There were stone tablets. There were two copies, not because 1 through 5, 6 through 10 of the Ten Commandments, but because there was a copy for Israel... And a copy for who? God. So the law then, these covenant stipulations was, was written on stone tablets, but now it's written within them. It's written on their heart. Moreover, God says this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now we take that for, for granted, don't we? There was a mediator of the old covenant. Who was it? Name rhymes with Moses. It was Moses. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He was the one who would go up to the mountain for days and speak to God as a man speaks to another man. Scripture says, and he would come down from the mountain and he would speak to the people the word of God. So the people of Israel only knew God in the old covenant because they knew Moses. And that didn't get them very far. But in this new covenant, 
They're all going to know God. We take that for granted. But notice what else it says. From the greatest of them to the least of them. In the Old Covenant, you've got tribes, you've got a tribe of priests, the Levites, you've got prophets, you've got other people, you've got kings, you've got, you've got this social stratification. But in the New Covenant, there's a level playing field. All of them will know me from the greatest to the least. Hmm. In Covenant... In covenants of this day, that would be unheard of. Really, the client or vassal king would only interact with the covenant-making king because everybody else would be nothing, worthless, forgotten about, but not in this new covenant. And look lastly at the second half of verse 34. This is the kicker. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No one's mentioned any sacrifices with this new covenant. How is sin going to be forgiven? Moreover, God, you're good and you're just. How can you remember our sin no more? So God needed to make a new covenant with Israel because they couldn't keep the old one. Way to go, Israel. And us. God makes this new covenant with them that's different than the old covenant. It has some of the common covenant components, but it doesn't have some of the others. So how? How could God do this? How could God bring this to pass? There's no mention of sacrifice. How's this all going to work out, God? I don't get all the details. Plus, I don't like new stuff. I'm really into old stuff. There's another man of Israel who articulated this really well, and his name was Paul. First it was Saul, then he became Paul when he encountered the risen Christ. But look at Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When we ask the question, how, God, how will you cut this new covenant? Paul's speaking to the, these, these Gentile converts to Christianity in this region called Galatia. And he's telling them, because they started to observe the law, they realized that, hey, wait a minute. Jewish people have all these things that they need to do. First, they get, they get circumcised, then they do all this other stuff. They observe this law. Remember the old covenant? They're doing all these things, and Paul is crying out to them, begging them not to do this. And he says this, chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the people of Israel are stuck. Judah and Jerusalem have run out all the, the vast patience of an almighty God. And God says, clearly, you cannot accomplish this by yourself. So how does God make this new covenant come about? In the fullness of time. So 500 years are going to pass. 570 years are going to pass between the time that Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 31 
to when the fullness of time comes. And the fullness of time comes, and God sends his son. And she's born, he's born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem all those who are slaves to the law. And there's a new status. There's a new reality to those who are in that son, those who are in Christ. And Paul says earlier in the book of Galatians that it's only by faith that we're justified. It's only by faith in him that we can be in him. So how would God bring this to pass? He sends his son as a suffering servant. Not only that, but what does a covenant have to have from our common covenant components? Covenant has to have a sacrifice. So Almighty God sends his only son as a sacrifice born of a woman, born under the law. And is, Jesus is not only the sacrifice for sin in this covenant, he is also the priest of this covenant. Let your minds now be blown. He is both priest and victim presiding over this great cosmic covenant that everyone who believes in him, St. John would say it like this, yet to all who would believe in him, who would call upon his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Wait a minute. So this new covenant is not just reconstituting something old. It's bringing us into a new reality. And it's not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And what does that mean? It means for every nation under heaven. Every people of the world can be a son or daughter of God. They can be adopted of God. And not only that, but they can have the law of God written on their hearts. How does that happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit. Paul says it beautifully. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has introduced a totally new way to relate to him. And that's why it's called a new covenant. We're not crying out as vassals or as serfs of a vassal king to a bigger client king that through all this stuff we can maybe relate to him. No, but from the greatest to the least of us, all of us have access. All of us have presence with him. The Hebrew word for presence is the word for face. We can all seek and see his face. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. So we get to live in freedom. In total and complete freedom. And that's one of the things that we notice characterizes St. Bartholomew in his interaction with Jesus in John chapter 1. Called Nathaniel in John 1. And the rest of the gospel of John. But we see this total freedom that he has as he interacts with Jesus. We want to live in that freedom at St. Bart's. We have so much church weight. It's not like the freshman 15. It's like for the whole of your life, you've just had church weight put on you. We've had it put on us. And a lot of us are working through that. And it's hard and it's messy and it's sad and it's dark and it can be gross. But I beg of you not to wander away into myths. 
into soothing voices that will satisfy our itching ears, as St. Paul said to his son Timothy. But we can live in the freedom of the children of God. And that parable that Jesus mentions in Luke 18 makes a little more sense, doesn't it? If we have total freedom, then we can use it in a productive way as we seek the welfare of the city. Eugene Peterson, writing in the book the Un Under the Unpredictable Plant, talks about the religion of America, Christianity in America. And he says, we have unparalleled religious, and he's writing in the early 90s, we have unparalleled relig religious freedom, and that still exists today. He says, but the religion, the spirituality that America has produced is not what we read in Scripture, but it's more commercial it's more plasticky. It's more fake. He calls it ecclesiastical pornography because it's not real. And he says, we took that freedom and this is what we created. Now, we have freedom, sons and daughters of the Most High God, recipients of this new covenant by faith in Christ. What will we do with the freedom that we have? How will we live as individuals? How will we live at St. Bart's? Does that freedom mean that we have license to sin? We know the answer to that, no. Just because I have complete and total freedom doesn't mean I can go out and do whatever I want. I know that's true. That's unproductive. But does it also mean that we can just run out the clock? Yeah, he'll, Jesus will come someday. Probably not in my lifetime, but he'll come and I'll be fine because I'll walk the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, whatever, insert your, however you did your thing. But this is what Jesus says, and this is what he says to the effect that his disciples, you and me, ought always to pray and not lose heart. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Just stop right there. A judge's job was always to protect the orphan, the widow, those who were weak. The judge didn't fear God. He didn't fear people. And this widow was coming to him day and night, crying out for justice to be done. A wid widows in this day were particularly vulnerable to be taken advantage of in many ways. And so the widow cries out to the judge, but the judge isn't going to help her. And Jesus is making a, if, if this, then how much more will God, sort of argument. And he says, if this unrighteous judge gives justice to this widow, how much more will your Father in heaven answer the elect, his children, those who cry by the Spirit of God, Abba, Father, how much more will he answer them? So there's a sense in which Luke is telling us through Jesus' words, we need to spend our time of freedom in prayer and crying out for justice and crying out for vindication. But also, Jesus finishes the parable with this, verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What are we going to do with our freedom, St. Bart's? The ultimate question is, will he find faith 
on earth? Will he find faith in me and in you? Will we have said yes to his ask of us? Will you? Hmm. We read finally of the same Paul writing to a young Timothy. This is in Paul's waning days. He's about to be executed. And he has another message of, Timothy, as you live in your freedom, do this. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Pause. The sacred writings aren't the New Testament canon that you and I think of. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. So have in your mind Jeremiah 31. Doesn't mean he's not talking about what would become the New Testament canon. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But those writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What will you do with your freedom? There's freedom to float away. But we, we, we are a three-stream church. That means scripture, spirit, sacrament. That means that this book is God's word written. And friends, I know you've seen it. I watch it happen. I have friends that call me and tell me about how they're, you know, I just don't see how I can be Christian anymore. There are innumerable teachers who will tell us what we want to hear. But in this community, this is either God's word or it's not. There's either salvation in Christ through this new covenant or there's not. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. Verse 3 of chapter 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Hmm. We are participants in this new covenant. Through Christ, through faith in him, belief in him, not by anything that we've done. It's a scandal because we want to earn it. We want to do our stuff. We want to do our exercises and we want to do our Bible studies and we want to do all the stuff to say, look what I did. I earned it. I've earned my wage when really it's a gift. And unless you receive the gift, you can't participate in it. We've received this gift. We get to live in freedom like no one else has ever lived crying out to God through the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, but what will we do with our freedom? Will we be people of prayer, crying out to God day and night? Will we be people of the word, saturating ourselves, letting this narrative be our narrative? Or will, when the Son of Man comes, will he not find faith? On this earth, you have freedom. We have complete and total freedom in Christ. We are adopted children of Almighty God. What will we do with it? Will we seek the welfare of this city, of East Dallas, of the people around you 
in your neighborhood and your home in which we are exiles, or will we spend it on ourselves? Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your holy word to us. May you add to its reading and its preaching the blessing and transformation of your Holy Spirit that we would never be the same. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.